If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, going all the way through verse 44. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along with the Pew Bibles. You can find that on page 953. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 11. Whom do you trust more than anybody else? Think about it. Who's the one person that you know you can count on? If you need something done, if you need someone to have your back, if your life were hanging in the balance, if your fate came down to one phone a friend, who are you calling? Whom do you trust more than anyone? And why do you trust them? What makes them trustworthy? My guess is you probably have come to learn through experience that they care about you as much, if not more, than they care about themselves. And depending on what you're trusting them with, you've learned that they're capable. Of course, it's easy to say that you trust someone. It's an entirely different thing when it comes to actually trusting them when it counts. It's easy to say, I trust you. It's hard to actually put your life, your safety, your health, your career, your kids, your dogs, your garden even, in someone else's hands. This is what you do in trust. You are relying upon someone else to do something for you that you cannot. Of course, the more valuable that the thing is, the higher trust that is required. Okay, you'll get your ears pierced at Claire's. You're probably going to shop around if you need brain surgery. You're trusting the doctor who puts you under. You're trusting the mechanic who's working on your car. You're trusting the sitter with your kids. You're trusting your advisor with your finances. Easy to say, hard to do. And yet, until your trust has been tested, how do you know you really trust them? Until you've been given the opportunity to rely upon them, how do you know that you actually trust them? As a parent, I'm regularly reminded of how fickle my kid's faith in me really is. Do you trust me? Of course I do. I need you to eat this. I need you to try this. John 2, flipping at the table. <laughs> right? Do you trust me? I need you to drink this medicine. World War III. Do you trust me? I need you to hold still for this shot, for these stitches, for this procedure. Do you trust me? I need you to believe that I care about you more than you care about yourself. That I know better for you than you do. That what I'm doing is intended to lead you to life. You see, it's easy to say that you trust someone until you have to actually relinquish control and rely upon them. John 11 gives us what has to be one of the most retold stories in the book of John. Top three, I think. Up there with the woman at the well in John 4, with the healing of the blind man in John 9. Amidst all the teaching of the resurrection and the remarkable act that Jesus will do in raising Lazarus. I think it can be easy to miss what Jesus is most fundamentally after here. Our trust. Mary, Martha, and no doubt Lazarus had an idea about what was best for their lives. Jesus had a different idea. They confessed faith in Christ, 
Now when rubber hits the road, when death comes to their door, when grief brings them to their knees, Jesus is telling them, I need you to trust me. Jesus, as we'll see, demonstrates that he is fundamentally worthy of our trust. Yes, even in the midst of tragedy. Yes, even in the midst of life's greatest tragedy. What we fear the most, death. Jesus is worthy of our trust. Do you trust Jesus? Why do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus when it counts? When the things that you value are threatened? When your plans, your health, your career, your life is hanging in the balance? Do you trust Jesus? I would encourage you to keep these questions in mind as we read the text. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. It is quite a long text. I will stand with you the whole time. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a man was sick. Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard the news that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told them, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble. Because he sees the light of this world but if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord... There is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I say this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We're halfway through now the gospel of John. Jesus has given us some of the most wonderful promises in this book. The forgiveness of sins, new birth, eternal life, resurrection, his spirit, the knowledge of him that is his light. There are too many to recount. John's most famous famous verse serves as well as any to give a kind of summary of Jesus' message and his promise. John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus promises that in him we escape sin's major consequence, which is death. And in him we receive life, eternal life, abundant life. What we were made for and most long for, Christ promises us. Communion with God, knowledge and union with Him. It's a remarkable offer when you think about what's at stake. When you think about what you value and fear the most, Jesus is promising to deal with your greatest problems, sin and death. And He's promising to meet your greatest craving, which is life. Jesus is asking you to trust Him. To not worry about death and judgment, life and satisfaction because he's got it covered. He's asking you 
to trust him? Do you trust Jesus? The Christian, of course, says yes. This is what saving faith is. We come to rest and to rely upon him for salvation. Again, it's easy to say you trust someone with something until that something is on the line. Right? Do you trust me with your car? Of course. Can I borrow it for the weekend? We say we trust, trust Jesus with life and death and resurrection. What about when life doesn't feel abundant? When you perceive more perishing than living? When you feel more thirsty than satisfied? When death, the thing that you fear, is threatening life, the thing that you want? What about when Jesus doesn't seem to be answering your prayers? Do you trust Jesus when he actually gives you opportunities to trust him? I want to give you three reasons to trust Jesus from the text. Three reasons to trust him when it counts, when life feels more like death, when joy is overcome with grief, when your future is murky, when your pathway feels covered, when Jesus' plans and ideas are different than yours, and if you are being honest, they seem worse. Perhaps like Martha and Mary, you prayed for life, but it seems you got death. Why should you trust Jesus? Trust Jesus, three reasons we see in the text. Trust Jesus because he is wise. Trust Jesus because he is compassionate. And trust Jesus because he is powerful. Trust Jesus because he's wise, compassionate, and powerful. Jesus is wise. Jesus knows better than you do about what you need. His plans are not only different than ours, they are better than ours. Trust Jesus because he's compassionate. Not only does Jesus know better than you about what you need to live an abundant life, Jesus cares more about you than you care about yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. And Jesus is powerful. Not only does he know what you need and care about you enough to give it to you, he alone is capable of delivering, of stopping death and giving life. First, trust Jesus because he is wise. His plans are better and different than ours. We begin in verse 1. Now, a man was sick. Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord of perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. That story hasn't even happened yet. That takes place in John chapter 12. It's so well known to John's readers that he can mention it before it's happened. You might not know the gospel of John very well. You probably know the story of this woman who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil and then wiped them with her hair. Okay, this Lazarus who is sick, that's his sister. This is not some random family to Jesus. They are devoted, but not just devoted disciples. These are Jesus' friends. The man's sick, so verse 3, the sisters sent a message to him. Lord, the one you love 
is sick. Usually in the Gospels, when someone approaches Jesus about a sick person, it's, Lord, the one that I love is sick. John 4, come down before my boy dies. Luke 8, Jairus falls down at the feet of Jesus and pleads with him, come to my house before my only daughter dies. Of course, none of these people were unknown or unloved by Jesus. He's the God-man. But what Lazarus has is unique. It's the kind of friendship that can only be bought by time together. Not, Lord, the brother we love is sick, but, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one that you've eaten with is sick. The one that you've laughed with, the one that you've drank with and played with and taught and rebuked and walked with your friend Lazarus, the one that you love is sick. Lazarus, in fact, is so loved by Jesus, they don't even have to say his name. The one that you love is sick. He's so loved by Jesus, in fact, they don't have to ask Jesus to do anything. Their message is clear. They're wanting Jesus to act. They have said enough, the one that you love is sick. Think about it, if your father texts you and says, that your mother is on her deathbed, you don't respond, dot, dot, dot. What does this have to do with me? Your spouse texts you or someone's hit by a car, we're on the way to Le Bonner. You don't sit there waiting for a formal request. Like, I wonder if she's going to send me an iCal invite. I wonder why she's telling me this. What they want from Jesus... Their lame-raising, death-stopping, blind-healing life-promising friend is obvious. Jesus, the man that you love, is sick, and if you don't do anything, he's dead. And here's what the sisters realize. Nobody can help them but Jesus. This is a good place to be. Often a painful place, but a wonderful place. No one can help me but Jesus. They do what should be most instinctive for the Christian they simply ask. As Pastor Joshua told us last week, prayer should not be the last resort for the Christian, but the first response. They have a need and they take it to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, are you quick to take your needs to Christ? What the sisters are going to find in Jesus is not just one who can deal with their problem, Lazarus' sickness, but one who can deal with their sorrow. Jesus is both our healer and our helper. As we sang last week, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Our sin bearer is also our grief bearer. Our Savior is our sympathizer. Do you realize that Jesus intends to be both for you? In your suffering? Do you go to him with both your sin and your sorrow? Are you needlessly carrying burden? I tell him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus responds there in verse 4. It's not clear who Jesus is speaking to. I don't think it's the disciples because below they seem to be oblivious to what's going on with Lazarus. I think Jesus is giving the messenger something to take back to the sisters. Jesus gets the news. He responds, 
I think, to the messenger. He takes this back, they take this back to the sisters. This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. They get the message back. Expectations are high. This sickness will not end in death. They're busting out the good stuff. Some of the vintage year 30 wedding and cane of wine. They're celebrating. Jesus doesn't say there won't be a death. We, of course, from our vantage point, knows what happens. Jesus is saying it won't ultimately end in death. Jesus actually has a higher concern than simply relieving Lazarus of his sickness. Namely, that the Father glorifies the Son with his own glory. Meaning... God is going to reveal that Jesus is the divine son and people are going to recognize him as such and will come to trust him. This, in the end, will be better for Lazarus, for Martha, for Mary, for the disciples, for the church. Jesus is after the glory of God and it's actually good news for us. It's important for us to grasp That God is not concerned with his glory in such a way that we become an afterthought or some kind of casualty in his quest for honor. It's not as though this situation improves God somehow and yet worsens Lazarus and Martha and Mary. No, it's as God reveals himself as the glorious one that we see Jesus for who he is and we come to trust him. We gain more intimacy with him, deeper friendship with him. It's as Jesus pursues the glory of God that he's also acting in love for us. We see this in verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. If we were being honest, verses 5 and 6 don't sound right. We think it should read this way. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and so when he heard that he was sick, he left immediately. Jesus jumped on the fastest horse and he taught it to fly. Or, if Jesus is going to stay, we think it should read like this. When he heard the news, Jesus was busy, so he stayed for two more days. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, sure, but he loved the people that he was with more, so he stayed where he was. Jesus doesn't really care about them, so he stayed for two more days. Some of us, I don't doubt, are tempted to read the text and our own lives with a grimmer outlook. Jesus hates them, and so he stayed put. It's not what the text says. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Martha. They were his friends. He came to earth to die for them. He loves them so much, he's going to do something that's hard. He waits. He knows, of course, that over the next two days, Lazarus will suffer. He's going to burn up in his bed. He's going to fight for his last breaths. His life will slowly slip away, and with a word, without even traveling to Bethany, with a single word, Jesus could relieve him of his pain. Worst of all, he knows Martha and Mary are hopeful 
because Jesus got their message. They're telling Lazarus, don't worry, Jesus is on his way. Don't worry, Jesus is not going to disappoint us. Don't worry, Lazarus, it won't end in death. He loves you. And because their faith is weak, Jesus knows he'll disappoint them, at least initially. And yet he waits. Why? He loves them. He waits. Why? Because his plans are better than theirs. He is wise. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how you are tempted to read the events of your life. Are you inclined to think that Jesus is against you when things aren't going your way? If you were writing your own gospel, what would chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 say? Now, Jesus didn't care about me. Now, Jesus had other priorities. Now, Jesus was being cruel, so when he heard my prayers to end sickness to give me a spouse, to grant me children, to promote me at work, to keep my kids from dying. He stayed where he was because he doesn't care. Brothers and sisters, your read on the events of your life is not a good barometer of God's love for you. Calvin warns us, we ought not to judge the love of God from the condition which we, with which we see before our eyes. He goes on, let believers then implore the assistance of God. He's saying, ask of God, pray to God, but let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they may think that necessity requires. For whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps and he never forgets his people. Brothers and sisters, you should be able to look at all the events of your life, even your suffering, and say, Jesus loves me. Not even despite of this, but because of this, Jesus loves me. Your pain is not a sign that God has forgotten you, or is neglecting you, or is mistreating you. No, brothers and sisters, his ways are wiser than yours, and in love, he acts on your behalf. He acts for his glory, which is for your good. Do you believe that? Do you trust Jesus when it counts? Jesus' plan will result in more than simply Lazarus getting over his sickness. Three times we see explicitly what it leads to. We saw in verse 4, the son is glorified. That means he's revealed and people can receive him. We see a second outcome in verse 15. Okay, so there's been back and forth, Jesus, the disciples. Uh, Jesus says when you go to Bethany, they're like, Jesus, we don't want to go there. The food is bad and people are trying to kill you. Jesus explains Lazarus has fallen asleep and by that he means he's died. And then Jesus actually explains how this is good for the disciples. Verse 15, I am glad. I'm actually glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. This whole event will serve to strengthen their faith. As each of them are facing death and martyrdom. And they're being called to recant of their faith in Christ. They're not going to be able to get the resurrection out of their minds. I saw Jesus walk out of the tomb. He's promised to raise me one day. I already saw him do it once. Take my body if you want. He can't have my life. Jesus' actions here will serve to strengthen the faith of his disciples. We see a third outcome in verse 42. There Jesus is praying 
to the Father in a public way, I know that you have always heard me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. Jesus then heals Lazarus in verse 45. No shock, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. Martha and Mary had a good thing in mind. Stop my brother from dying. Jesus had something better in mind. I will raise him to the dead from the dead, revealing myself to be the Son of God, the author of life, the victor of death. I will confirm the faith of my disciples and create new faith in others. These are just some of the explicit benefits in the text. What do you think happened in the hearts of Martha and Mary? Well, in the next chapter, Mary is willing to dump her most prized possession on the feet of Jesus and to wipe them with her hair and her tears. Mary did not understand herself to be some kind of afterthought. Do you think Lazarus counted temporary sickness and death worth the eternal life it led to? Brothers and sisters, is your suffering worth gaining more of Jesus? Is your temporary pain worth more friendship with him? Is your heartache now worth the salvation of your friends and your family and your children? If the answer is no, you love the thing you stand to lose more than Jesus. God in his kindness will strip us from it. Why does God allow us to suffer? Why does he send suffering our way even to put it positively? There are more reasons and mysteries than I know. But let me ask you a question. If you never suffered, do you really think you'd need Jesus? Imagine if God answered all your prayers as soon as you asked them. Like what kind of stuff would you be praying for? You would get all the things you don't need and miss out on the one that you do. Jesus could do the easy thing here and to heal Lazarus. They might be tempted to think he just got better. Calvin, again, he's so insightful here. He says, if God immediately stretches out his hand, we do not perceive his assistance. He's saying that God is constantly at work in our lives to provide for us. Most of it happens naturally. I work, I get paid, I eat. We don't realize that is a gift that is coming from God. And so God in his kindness puts us in a position where we must recognize his provision. He provides for us in ways that only he can. In the end, we get what we really need, which is Jesus. We see the revelation of his glory, we accept him, and it is what leads to life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' plans are much better than ours. We should pray to him, we should take our needs to him. We should ask with an open hand, knowing he might not answer it in the way that we desire. And yet, his plans are better. Trust Jesus because he's wise. Trust Jesus because he's compassionate. Jesus, brothers and sisters, he cares about you more than you care about yourself. His disposition toward you when you're in sin and you're weak and you're suffering or struggling is mercy. Jesus' attitude toward you when you are weak is mercy. So Jesus, he rounds up the boys Tommy says, we're ride or die. He's, he's ten toes down. He's ten toes down like Josh said last week. They arrive in Bethany, verse 17. Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
So kind of reconstructing events, Jesus hears that Lazarus was sick. He waits two days. Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up four days later. Martha and Mary get word that Jesus has arrived. Mary stays at the house. Martha goes to him. Verse 21, then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary says the exact same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. How many times do you think they said this to one another over the last four days? When Lazarus was still alive, it was, don't worry, the Lord is coming. Lazarus, brother, don't worry, he's almost here. Don't worry, he'll be in our home once again and you won't die. Soon it became, if the Lord had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. For four days they've been echoing this pain to one another. If the Lord had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha sees Jesus and she tells him exactly what she's been thinking Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Make no mistake, Martha is complaining to the Lord in faith. We see faith and doubt, but she's complaining in faith. We told you he was sick. We asked you to do something that's not hard for you to do. I've seen you do it for a stranger. Why didn't you come here? If you had come, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha is a wonderful model for us. In the prayer of lament, she honestly complains to God in such a way that her trust in God is renewed. She moves from complaint to a new request. Look at verse 21 and 22. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Complaint. Her trust is renewed and she asked, yet even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Brothers and sisters, do you feel free to complain to God? I don't mean sinfully accusing God of wrongdoing, but do you feel free to grieve to him? To fall down before him? To groan about the things that you don't understand. Do you persist in prayer even when your prayers go unanswered? Knowing that if your need is going to be met, it has to come from God. Martha and Mary, they give us these wonderful pictures of people who are struggling to believe what they believe. They ask in faith. They assume, of course, to know what's best. They complain. They doubt. And guess what? Jesus still loves them. He came to them. And get this, Jesus wants to hear it all. He's about to invite Mary in a second. The teacher is here. He wants you to come. Despite their doubts and complaints, Jesus still works for their good. He still works for our good. Jesus has come not just to heal Lazarus, but to comfort the sisters. He's comforting Martha now by doing two things. One, he's listening to her. He's modeling for us the ministry of presence and of listening. And the second thing that Jesus is going to do is he's going to speak the truth to her. Somewhere along the way, we've been taught that it's almost borderline sin to speak the truth to people who are suffering. No doubt you can say the wrong thing 
You can say the right thing in a wrong way. You can say the right thing at the wrong time. Jesus is going to comfort Martha by speaking the truth to her. He wants her to grieve, yes, but not like those who do not have hope. And so he responds in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. You see, the Jews had a belief in a general resurrection on the last day, on the day of judgment, on the day of new creation. Her hope is in that day. I know he will rise then. Jesus wants her hope to be not in a general resurrection, but in himself. There is one way to rise to life on that day, and it comes through Christ. He wants her hopes even to be less abstract and future and more personal and present in Jesus. By letting Lazarus die so that he could raise him, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, the disciples, everyone who is watching, us who are reading can come to know and believe what Jesus says here in verse 25. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is promising resurrection to those who believe in him. Spiritual resurrection now. That's verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. We avoid what scripture calls the second death, God's judgment for sin. And he's promising bodily resurrection later. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. You see, what's about to happen to Lazarus is a picture of what has already happened to us spiritually. And it's a picture of what will happen to us one day physically. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God gave us life. Spiritual life. God spoke a word and breathed his spirit on the cold heart stone that was your heart and made it beat for him. Life. The kind of life that you will never lose. And one day God is going to rip our bodies from the grave and give it life. Never to die again. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter if you die of old age or in your youth. It doesn't matter if you die by fire or sickness or martyrdom. It doesn't matter if your body was left behind a house or if you were buried in the grave. If you are in Christ Jesus on that day when he calls your name, you will rise. This is the Christian hope. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You probably saw that Tim Keller died on Friday. He went to be with the Lord. His last words to his family were this. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. He's saying to die is gain. Keller, of course, is not trying to downplay the tragedy that death is. We'll see how Jesus models for us how we respond to death. But when you grasp what Jesus is saying, death for the Christian is actually the doorway to life. Though you die, you live. Actually, through death, you come to life. Death, as Calvin writes, is itself a sort of emancipation from the bondage of death. Brothers and sisters, when you die, you will say goodbye to death forever. The last hospital that you will ever see for all of eternity is the one that you were laid in. The last doctor that you will ever have to visit was the one that was attending you. 
In heaven, there will be no hospitals, no doctors, no morgues, no grave diggers, no graves. When you die, you will be freed from death. Even if he dies, he will live. He will live and never die again. Brothers and sisters, do you trust Jesus? It's easy to say that you do until it matters. Jesus, in his kindness, will put us in a position where we have to exercise trust. And he wants to know the answer to a question. It's what he asks Martha there. Do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you trust me when it counts? When your greatest foe, death, is threatening your greatest desire, life, do you trust me? Martha responds there in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Martha the theologian. This is as good of a confession as you can make about Christ. You are Israel's Messiah, the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king, come to renew the people, to pay for the penalty for sins, to pour out your spirit. You are the Son of God, eternally come forth from the Father in his bosom even now. And in the fullness of time, you've come into the world for us and for our sins. This is the Apostles' Creed in miniature. The fathers were just copying Martha. Again, notice Jesus is comforting Martha. He does so with his presence by listening to her prayers. He does so as he speaks the truth and as he renews her trust and her confession in him. She, of course, is not the only one that needs comforting there. If you look at verse 28, Jesus sends Martha to get Mary. She's still at the house. Martha calls her private and says to her, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Why do you guys think Mary is at home? She who in Luke 10 would not leave Jesus' feet. Why is she still at home? You don't know for sure, but I suspect she is overwhelmed with grief and is frustrated with Jesus. He said it wouldn't end in death, and here we are. I counted on him. She's discouraged. And where does Jesus want her to be? In her home alone or by his side? The teacher is here and he's calling for you. Brothers and sisters, where do you think that Jesus wants you to be when you're frustrated with him? When your heart is heavy with anguish, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. How do you respond to his call? Mary, again, she's instructed for her like her sister was. Verse 29, as soon, as soon, as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Verse 32, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I promise you, Mary has not fallen to anyone's feet and called them Lord since Lazarus has died. This is, as one commentary put it, an act of depression and devotion. She is unraveling before the Lord of life and death. He gives and he takes, but blessed be the name of the Lord. She runs to him. She falls at his feet. She repeats the same complaint that Martha did. If you were here like we asked you to be, if you were here like you could have been, 
If you were here like we counted on you, my brother would not have died. How do you think Jesus is going to respond? How do you think Jesus responds to the cries of his people? Does he scold us? Does he dismiss us? Do you think he's going to minimize our suffering because he knows what's about to happen? Mary, stop. I'm about to raise him from the dead. No, she gives her heartache to Jesus and he returns in kind. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Brothers and sisters, is your Jesus a weeping Jesus? Mary cries, the Jews cry, but Jesus weeps. Jesus, knowing there will be a happy ending, weeps. Jesus knows the truth. That though he dies, he will live, and he weeps. Jesus, seeing the destruction that sin has wrought, weeps. Jesus, seeing how death has stolen from us all sense of security and peace and longevity, weeps. Jesus sees Mary cry over the loss of her brother, and he weeps as though he's lost his own. Is your Jesus a weeping Jesus? Brothers and sisters, you would do well to disabuse yourself from any notion that God delights in your suffering. He does not. He is not the cruel child with the magnifying glass hovering over your life on a sunny day. He is God become man to weep with you by the gravesite. More than that, to die in your place. Every day that Jesus delayed coming to them was a day of pain for himself. And yet in his wisdom, he delayed. In his love, he waited. He knows what's better for them and better for us. When that plan brings pain and it will, Jesus draws near to us with his compassionate presence. You can trust him. Jesus is wise. Jesus is compassionate. Now someone can be wise and compassionate and still not be very helpful. That's not our Jesus. Trust Jesus because he is powerful. Jesus is powerful. Verse 38. Then again, Jesus deeply, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Think about how shockingly outrageous Jesus' comment must have seemed. Think about the last time you were at a funeral. Imagine being at a graveside four days after the death of your friend and some traveling preacher rolls up and says, remove the dirt. Like, those are fighting words. Remove the stone. Like, what are you, what are you playing at here? Remove the stone, why? Even Martha intervenes. Verse 39, Martha, the dead man's sister, John reminds us, not the blind man's sister, not the sick man's sister, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead 
four days. Jesus, it's too late. You had your chance. We sent you a message six days ago. He's been dead for four days now. The time that has lapsed is significant. Physically, the body has begun to rot. Jesus is going to have to reverse nature's course. And spiritually, second, rabbis at the time, they taught that when somebody died, their spirit remained near their body for three days. This is like what everyone believed at the time. You're not going to find it in your Bible. Okay, spirit's there for three days trying to get back in, can't get back in, leaves. Jesus waits four days so that no one can accuse him of simply waking Lazarus up from a coma or simply even helping the soul back into the body. Lazarus is dead, dead. Okay, doctor got the time his body died. Rabbi got the time his soul flew away. And Martha points out we can smell his corpse. He's begun to decompose. It's too late, Jesus, even for you. Brothers and sisters, notice how fickle our faith can be. Verse 3, Martha implores Jesus to help. Verse 22, Martha confesses, still, I know whatever you ask from God, God can do, God will give you. Here, Jesus is ready to give Martha what she wants. And Martha is ready to stop him. Lord, it's too late. We can already smell the body decomposing. Brothers and sisters, how often do we ask God to do something and then we protest when he's ready to act? To save this spouse, to send us overseas, to work this out, and then God's ready to act and we actually stand in his way. Again, see, Martha's faith in Christ is not perfect. Good thing Jesus is not asking for perfection. The feebleness of her faith is not enough to stop Jesus from acting for her good. He gently reminds her there in verse 40, if she would just believe, this is going to lead to God's glory, which is also for the good of his people. Verse 41, they remove the stone. Jesus begins to pray. He lifts his eyes to heaven, thanking the Father for something that's about to happen. Again, imagine that you're there. Not one hour ago, the overwhelming feeling was grief. Sorrow had wrung you out until your tears were dry. Jesus shows up and the mood changes. Now there's a host of people here. There are Jews that have come from Jerusalem. Some of them, no doubt, his opponents who want to stone him. But everyone knows Jesus is no ordinary man. You've heard the stories. He's raised the lame. He's healed the sick. He's opened the eyes of the blind. You heard he even raised a young man from death outside of Nain. He speaks of himself as the son of God and the son of man. Not everyone, of course, is feeling the same way about what's going on. Remove the stone. Some people are thinking the audacity of this man to show up to a grieving house and to make a mockery of their sorrow. Right? It's like one thing to show up to a wedding in Cana and to save it. It's another thing to make yourself a fool at a funeral. What's he going to do? We can already smell the body rotting. Other people, of course, are thinking, like, what if? Like, what if his mastery doesn't stop with water or bread or sea or sickness? What if he is indeed the Lord of life 
and death? What if he really is the resurrection and the life? Jesus finishes praying there. He turns his attention from heaven to the grave. And with the same power that he spoke the cosmos into existence. He cries, Lazarus, come out! The air probably collectively sucked out of everybody's bodies. Your eyes are fixed. There on the tomb, verse 44, the dead man came out. Brothers and sisters, Jesus commands the dead to rise with more ease than you can call your dog or your kids to yourself. Jesus speaks with such power. Augustine noted that if he didn't call Lazarus by name, all the dead in the earth would have been ripped from their graves. Lazarus, come out. Jesus speaks with such power that when you were dead in your trespasses, you came to life. When you had no ears to hear, you heard his voice. When you were blinded by sin, you saw his glory. Lazarus, come out. Jesus speaks with such power that when he called your name, yes, your name, Satan lost his dominion over you. Sin lost its sting and death lost its power. Lazarus, come out. Brothers and sisters, this is what happened to you when you were saved. Jesus spoke your name and you walked out of death into life. Come out. I love that Lazarus doesn't hear the voice of a stranger. He heard the voice of one snatching him from death back to life and he knew who it was. That's my Jesus who loves me. When he calls, I follow. We see so clearly what, John, what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. Lazarus knew his voice. When Jesus speaks the name of his sheep, they follow him first out of death into life, then through the valleys to greener pasture, finally across the Jordan into the land of promise. On the day of resurrection, John chapter 5, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. This is the hope that belongs to the Christian and the Christian alone. Not because Lazarus rose, but because Jesus rose from the grave, so too will we. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we actually avoid the second death. Because he walked out of the grave, we can partake in his life forever, and it is a gift he simply calls us, come out. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, we would implore you to hear that some kind of general hope in the afterlife is not going to be enough. Jesus is the life and the resurrection. It is by believing in his death and his resurrection alone that we can be freed from sin and the tyranny of death. Free to live with him forever in the land of peace. We would encourage you to stay after, to talk with any one of us about the gospel. Jesus called us. Not to tax us, but to give us a gift. It ends there in verse 44. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips. And with his face wrapped in a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Brothers and sisters, we will leave death behind one day like clothes we no longer have need for. Whose plans were better? Mary and Martha's or Jesus? He has done great things we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Yes, often until we reach that day, we weep. Knowing that he has done great things, he will continue to do great things. What we find in Jesus is one who is preeminently worthy of our trust. He is an all-wise king. He rules over us with wisdom. He is a compassionate high priest. He cares for us more than his own body. He gave himself up for us. He is a prophet with power like none other. He spoke a word and we rose out of death. All that he brings us is for our good. Do you trust him? He knows better than you do. He loves you more than you love yourself. He is powerful enough to see you to life. And he will. He's calling you to simply trust him. The teacher is here and he's calling to you. What does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What does he want to know? Do you believe this? Do you trust him? Let's pray.